Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmagulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. That is not going to really come into play... <laughs> in this particular episode, although we do have an opportunity to talk about uplifting people of color because mm-hmm. of the film version mm-hmm. of the text in question. We're talking about A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Longle. Longle? Yeah. Longle. I want to make her French so badly, and I realize <laughs> I should have looked up how to pronounce her last name because I'm pretty sure she's English. American? She's American. American This book English? is so much about how good America is. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of Christianity. There's yeah. a lot of American rah-rah. Did you know you can defeat badness by reciting the Declaration of Independence at it? There we go. <laughs> I think in some states you still can. That scene made me so mad. This is not a book for people who aren't American. Yeah, I think we both had a bit of a complicated experience yeah. with the book in particular. The movie is almost inoffensive in a more slightly problematic way but Mm -hmm. particularly with this book I know we were texting back and forth throughout the week and it feels very much not just a product of its time but also a product of I don't know like its geography it feels very steeped in Americanism and also concerns about communism even though Longel has said you know this isn't about communism it's about totalitarianism and dictatorships Mm. Mm. Uh, (laughs) why not both as a little girl with the Tostitos chip says you know I struggled with this book for lots of reasons I expected to love it this is one of those books that kind of passed me by in my youth that everybody else read and loved Mm mm-hmm I don't think it holds up well to an adult sensibility because the crisis is so simplistic and the solution is so simplistic. So simplistic. And the framing that this communist, I mean, sure, totalitarianist, but specifically communist, right? Like it's this idea that alike and equal, right, as separate constructs Mm -hmm. and the distrust of alikeness, that is very much about anxiety of, about communism mm-hmm. and look what happens when everybody acts the same because they have access to the same things right and that idea that it's not just american style capitalism and not just christianity but this merging of the two that mm-hmm. offer the solution Yes. When we look at the excesses of capitalism and the violence of American individualism in this particular moment, it just didn't age well for me. No, no. And I can't help but think when I was doing some of the research on this, you know, the responses to this particular book, and we'll get to the plot summary in a moment for folks who aren't quite aware of what we're really talking about. But I can't help but feel that so much of people's relationship is tied to that sense of nostalgia Mm -hmm. and also what this text means for little girls who feel like they are outsiders. 
Totally. But also just read Anne of Green Gables. It's better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do I do think that Longel was a fan of Lucy Maud Montgomery. Was she not? Did I imagine that? I don't think you imagined it. I think in general, though, she's really looking to connect with, I mean, 50s and 60s were such an important time for science fiction culturally right. in the US, right? And that yes. idea of imagining new futures, but imagining new futures that are deeply and profoundly stamped as American, right? And masculine. And masculine, yeah. Like it was very much about John Carter of Mars going off to discover new worlds and having slaves. Yay! Yeah, and so this is very much on, uh, I went to boarding school in Switzerland, and then I went to Smith College, and then I wrote this book for girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And I don't, I really don't mean that in a dismissive way. I just don't think that this is a book that has aged well. I mean, the central premise is that love will save us. That's nice. But also that love as sort of enacted and performed via strident individualism. Yes. And now we live in a society where we can't get people to wear masks. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe there's a happy medium. <laughs> I mean, I think there has to be. Not in the world of this book. Like to no. compromise in this book is death. Yes. And I think, again, that's just very much a product of its time, right? Like, it's don't be indoctrinated, don't succumb, retain that sense of individuality and be true to who you are. Yeah. But I think that message really doesn't resonate in a more global world where we acknowledge that you can be an individual and still follow the damn rules. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's called society. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, maybe we should go into the plot. Just... Oh, you don't want to hear my, my, uh, my rant about how people who live in societies with a greater sense of social compliance are handling the pandemic better? No? Okay. I, I, I mean, I think you, <laughs> you just worked it in, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Pandemic Chat with Brenna Yay! and Joe. <laughs> yeah, I got swabbed yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, so <laughs> it's on my mind. So, plot summary, our main character is Meg Murray. The way she spells Murray distracted me for literally the entire book. Can I just say? Missing that A, were you? Where was the A? Anyway. (laughs) So Meg is 13. She's troublesome at school. She's sort of stridently independent. Hint, that's a good thing later. Yes. But she has a tendency to be emotionally immature as well. And she follows her feelings. She's very reactive. Yeah, because she's a girl. And she's a girl. Her parents are both scientists. Even the girl parent is a scientist. Yeah, but it's important that we continually acknowledge how attractive she is. Oh, yeah. She's don't worry. She didn't get ugly because of being smart. She's super hot. It's true. No glasses or ponytail here, folks. No. We said so dismissive. We apologize to fans of this book. It's just (laughs) as newcomers to it, there's a lot of like, oh, okay, sure. It's extremely 1962. Yes. So the family consists of Meg, her parents, twins, Sandy and Dennis, and a baby brother while he's five, Charles Wallace. But he doesn't Mm -hmm. talk or act like a five-year-old. And he can pretty much read minds. Yes, he is magical. Meg's father has gone missing. He's been gone for about four years. And Mm -hmm. uh, the town definitely talks about it. He works for some government agency. It sounds like kind of like a pre-NASA or something that he works for. 
be. Yeah, it's never really spelled out. I think you can kind of transpose it onto whichever one you're most interested in, but it would make sense to have him do something off-worldly with science, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, she's always getting into trouble at school and her teachers are kind of like, oh, we feel sorry for that family because the dad's gone and the daughter's weird and the son's weird, but the other two kids are normal. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one dark and stormy night, a witch-like figure blows into the house. Yeah, more or less. And that's sort of the scene where we get a sense of who all these characters are. So Charles Wallace has a pre-existing relationship with this random human who's not really a human. And we realize that the mom is knows something that we don't know about. Anyway, all this to say, it turns out there's three of these women, Mrs. Who, Mrs. Witch, and Mrs. What's it? Correct. Oh, yay. Cool. Um, And they, along with a boy from school, Calvin, end up on this adventure to try to rescue Megan, Charles Wallace's father. Yes. So they have this power to tesser, which is where you fold the space-time continuum to kind of hop from one geographical location, but also time to another. Yeah, it's like a fifth dimension. Mm Mm-hmm. It's important if you're interested in getting into STEM for the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah way to be disappointed when you get to high school physics class, by the way. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of wrinkles in time when you get into the actual physics of it all. But maybe it's just because we haven't unlocked our potential. <laughs> um, and so when they, when they tesser, the misses show the kids that there's like this dark shadow that is starting to creep over earth but that has taken over other planets and Mm -hmm. the main planet that is sort of encased in this darkness is called kamazots Mm -hmm. um and that's where meg's father is trapped so they get there and they discover a society that is basically every american's worst fear of what communism looks like all the Mm -hmm. children bounce their balls at the same time and all the people say the same things and everyone follows the same routine Mm mm-hmm And the planet is controlled by an evil disembodied brain who manages to take control of Charles Wallace because Charles Wallace fails to be humble and recognize his own limitations. And so he's taken over by this brain power. And so please name it. Call it it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It's called it. Capital I, capital T. I definitely read IT throughout a good portion of the book. Yeah, me too. And it's taken over by IT. Ah! feel that way sometime though it's also distracting in the film because they also capitalize it in the subtitles in the film Mm -hmm. so anyway so what has to happen is in order to free her dad who makes the decision to try to just save meg because he thinks that charles wallace is unsavable so meg goes back in and she has to embrace her own faults in order to save her brother and by embracing her own faults she recognizes that it's her rugged individualism that makes her special Uh, But also her capacity for love. Also her capacity for love and also her ability to quote Bible verses and also her ability to remember the Declaration of Independence that ultimately saves everyone. Sassy Brenna coming out. I'm sorry, is that not exactly what happens? Does she not declare independence at it until everybody is saved? She recognizes that she is worthy of love and that she has love to give for all of her faults, Brenna, and that's what brings Charles Wallace back and then doesn't defeat the evil at all because there's three other books in this series. So it's basically just like recapture your younger brother and then tesser out of there. Yes. And then at the end, everybody is tessered back to Earth. The end. Which sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing because it's just travel. And they've actually been gone like five minutes. Yeah. 
So their mom doesn't even recognize anything's wrong until her husband walks in. You're like, oh, okay, great. If I were her mom, I'd be like, this is an elaborate story for your four-year absence, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you were really off with another woman. Weren't you? <laughs> was her name Tess? Is that what's happening here? Oh, you were off with the misses. <laughs> Three of them, huh? <laughs> I don't know. There are aspects of the story I really liked. I enjoyed many aspects of Meg's character. I just felt like it was so obvious in the way that the book chose to work with that, that I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I was underwhelmed. I think for a contemporary audience, it's really difficult to get a sense of how impactful this book would have been in 1962, right? Like we've seen these kinds of girls before. I found a couple of different articles that were like, we wouldn't have a Katniss Everdeen. We wouldn't have a Hermione Granger if we didn't have a Meg Murray. And mm. I was like, okay, that's insightful because when you read yeah. a wrinkle in time for the first time in 2020 what you get is a slightly petulant sort of bratty but obviously very smart and independently minded girl but it also feels like a lot of the headstrong female characters that we've come to know and like so mm -hmm. i liked all those aspects of meg although yeah there's a lot of this other stuff that's kind of circling around the fringes that i was like Ugh, okay so this is very explicitly 1962 it has not aged well as we've talked about yeah but there's also not that much more to Meg. So it's hard for me to understand why she's such an important literary character to a lot of girls. So I think there's this divorce that because we don't have the nostalgia, the book's faults are just really laid clear to us compared to somebody who said, I read this when I was a 12-year-old girl. I saw myself in Meg Marie and it shaped the person that I became. That is extremely persuasive to me. Like that... That's extremely persuasive. Like, I think this is the Anne of Green Gables to other people. And it's just because we didn't have that experience that it doesn't appeal to us in the same way. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. What you're saying, the lack of sort of anything more under the surface of Meg and the ways in which the book so clearly telegraphs what aspects of her are important that yeah. there's no sort of like hidden depth. And that was a disappointment because I wanted her to have hidden depth. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a very straightforward writing style, right? Yeah. Like we're kind of used to things being hidden under the surface or characters having more of an emotional arc. And really the Meg at the beginning is just that she's not secure in her own faults. And over the course of the book, she comes to realize, okay, these things that I identified as deficient are actually assets to me and that I should recognize them. And you're like, that's a great piece for children who are going into their teenage years to acknowledge. As an adult, you're like, yeah, okay, is that all you got? Yeah, I definitely felt that a lot in this book. Is that all you got? And I didn't want yeah. to. For me, the disappointment here is that I really went into it excited to sort of connect to this like book mm -hmm. that I knew was so important to so many people. And I just found... I actually, for for the fact that it's an easy read, and it genuinely is, like, she's a good oh, yeah. writer. She's mm -hmm. she's a clear and concise and, and thoughtful writer, inability to spell Murray correctly, notwithstanding. <laughs> but I just kept putting it down. Over and over again, I put this book down. It took me hilariously long to get through it. And uh, I will say, I read the graphic novel adaptation as well. Oh, yes, you had mentioned that. Okay, so how did you find that? Like, was it more visually captivating? No. <laughs> oh, okay unexpected um, which Please is a explain. shame <laughs> so the graphic novel is adapted by hope larson 
who we love. Yeah, we love. We love lots of her work. So it came out in 2012. And it definitely is, I would say, a very truthful or, you know, straightforward adaptation. Like it's not trying to do anything to update or make it like more sort of 2012-ish. Okay. Um, it's very straightforward. And so I, I think that's why it was it's such a beloved graphic adaptation because it is so true to the original text. Right. Okay. And she makes the decision, uh, Hope Larson makes the decision, or maybe the publisher, to, to do it in a single color. So it's sort of a like a kind of washed out blue and white all the way through. Um, and I really wanted more play with color. Like I thought it would have been really interesting to depict this um and actually i wanted this in the film too like mm-hmm. camazots shouldn't camazots be in grayscale yeah yeah like i wanted that for the comic book so badly and so that we can see the kind of like the value of this sort of fiery individual way of being in the world that that mm-hmm. meg embodies anyway i just thought it was a bit flat and i i'm sh- i know that people really like the comic but people really like the comic because they really like the book i don't think there's much there right. in and of itself Yeah, not to think too far ahead about the film, but one of the things that I wonder if revisions, particularly to the cover art and also the comic, is the fact that this book is also super duper white. Yes. So I know that the book was very important to Ava DuVernay, which is one of the reasons why she wanted to adapt it. And it was a big deal that a black woman got to helm a $100 million movie. It's the first of its kind, so you can't take that away from her. Mm -hmm. But I can't also help but wonder if one of the reasons that they might have stuck to neutral colors is because they didn't want to arbitrarily say Meg is now black, like she Mm -hmm. will be in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So there was apparently an adaptation in 2003. We didn't watch it for this. Mm-mm. Did you look it, look it up at all? I did. It's a Canadian production. So in hindsight, we probably should have checked it out. <laughs> yeah, we probably should have. It was also not well reviewed. No. In fact, that one came out while Madeline Lengel was still alive. And uh, yeah, she trash talked it. She said, I have glimpsed it. I expected it to be bad. And it is. <laughs> which is funny because a lot of people did acknowledge that it's a relatively straightforward adaptation and i think the big thing is they did struggle with some of the effects because they didn't have a huge budget but they also initially planned to make it a mini series like a two-part two-hour mini series and then they compressed it down to what i gather is about a two-hour plus adaptation so they probably had to condense and simplify a lot of things which makes sense because the text is very I don't want to say insular, but it's very meditative and inside Meg's head. Yeah. So it's a lot about emotions and what Meg is feeling and what Meg is thinking. And that becomes difficult for some screenwriters and for some filmmakers to capture without having people just espouse their feelings verbally. Yeah. One funny criticism that I saw, and again, we haven't seen the film, so we don't know, but folks have talked about how it has a very like quote unquote preachy ending and to that i say have you read the book (laughs) yeah okay is there anything further that we want to say about this idea of like religiousness so we have talked a a fair amount about the communism aspects Mm -hmm. versus totalitarianism Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about the religiousness of this book because I do think that that factors into the preachiness of it. Yeah, it definitely does. I think for me, one of the parts of it that kind of lands a bit flat 
So it's clearly that in the history of Christian fantasy, right, which is a long and lengthy history, you think of C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Yeah. Like, this is an established mode of children's literature in particular. Mm-hmm. But I guess what bothered me about it is that there's there's quite a bit of conflation. So there's one point where they're talking about, like, all the people who have fought the shadow, right? Yes. And they're like, they name a bunch of scientists yeah, and famous people. And famous people. And there are some references, like they name Buddha, they name Gandhi. So people who followed or, you know, led other religious traditions. But everything gets subsumed under Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's like Christianity as sort of the, and I mean, it's not only this book, but Christianity is sort of like the end point of religion that like all religion has been striving toward this one worldview, which is very common <laughs> and particularly in American representations of Christianity. Right. Then I just was like, ugh. It's a little off-putting if you're not a devout Christian. Yeah. Which is ironic because this film also gets flagged on the banned book lists almost all the time because it's associated with witchcraft. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, conservative Christians don't like this book. No, because it's too liberal. <laughs> and Langle is a liberal Christian. I'm pretty sure she's uh, she was yeah. Episcopal, I believe, which is American Anglicanism. I don't okay. think they like it when you say that, but that's what it is. I mean, you're speaking <laughs> Greek to me. I have no idea. <laughs> and so, you know, and I think the elevation of certain aspects of science to the level of religion that happens in the book is very uncomfortable for a lot of more conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. I did like that part. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess to me that that's like, well, then who is this book actually for? I mean, I think it's just for girls. Yeah. And and not to sound facetious about it, but like, I really feel like this is a book that's written to say, hey, girls, it's okay to be different and it's okay to be smart. Yeah, that's true. And in that regard, I'm like, okay, I actually really want to like this book and I can see why it's so important to people. It's just, yeah, there's too much of the author's religious interests and also clear fears of communism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's such a book of a time period that feels so troubled to me now. I don't know how you can live through this particular crisis and see staunch individualism as our salvation and to me this just felt so yeah just so so distanced from the reality we're living right now that i it was the wrong time to read this book for the first time i think that's Mm -hmm. ultimately all there is to it yeah this might have been a very different kind of episode had we covered this last year in the before times years in the future yeah who knows yeah Yeah, so all that to say, sorry to the folks who love this book and admire it deeply. I think we've recognized that there are some really good parts to it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a little too simplistic. And then, yeah, it has not aged well in some other regards. I would actually love to hear from folks who loved this book in their childhood who have revisited it recently. Maybe you reread it before you saw the film. I'd actually like to know how you feel it holds up. If you have that benefit of nostalgia and sort of love for the text, I mean that genuinely. I think I'd really like to know how it changes your perception of this book, because I feel like we've missed out on something here, Joe. A hundred percent. Yeah, like we're definitely going to make some people mad for failing to grasp the power of this. Totally. Yeah. So why don't we transition over to the film? Let's fail to grasp the importance of another text. (laughs) Uh, No, I think we're probably firmly in the majority with not a love of the film, but more of an admiration of what it attempts to do and doesn't quite succeed. Yeah. Roll that trailer. 
<laughs> Close your eyes. See with mine. You were a top student, but look at you now. You can't keep using your father's disappearance as an excuse to act out. Is that his work? What's it about? Their dad, he wanted to touch the stars. Imagine that the ant here wants to get to her other hand. The quickest option is to walk across the street. But it turns out a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. Not if you use a fifth dimension. It's outside of the rules we know of time and space. So the ant arrives in my hand instantaneously. So you fall to space. More likely wrinkle it. heard a cry out in the universe. Father's alive. We believe he is, and we're here to help you find him. We are in search of warriors. Warriors who serve the good and the light in the universe. You're kidding. Do I look like I'm kidding? A little. I'm not. I'm not. Your father's trapped by an evil energy. It's too strong for our light. And the only one who can stop it is you. Be a warrior. Alright, so A Wrinkle in Time from 2018, directed by Ava DuVernay, written by Jennifer Lee and Jeff Stockwell, and we'll come back to some of the problems that I think are inherently based in decisions that these two have made that kind of set the film up for failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we've got a core cast of not quite famous kids, but they have been around, particularly Storm Reed as Meg. So she's actually gone on to be Zendaya's little sister in Euphoria, as well as a couple of other things. Calvin is played by Australian Levi Miller, who has done some other YA stuff like Pan from 2015, which was not well received. Mm. He's also in a really great horror film that I'm excited to cover for my other podcast that you would hate. <laughs> it's all about toxic masculinity, but in a teenage form. So oh. it's amazing. And it's also very uncomfortable to watch. Ah, uh, okay. And then we've got uh, Charles Wallace, who is played by Derek McCabe, who I don't know from anything. Mm -hmm. And really, I think what you're supposed to take away from this is all of that adult stunt casting yes so yeah. much stunt casting so much like ava duvernay man she's got a rolodex that i am envious i was of. gonna say she called in some favors yes so we've got chris pine as mr murray gugu mbatha Ra as miss murray principal jenkins is played by andre holland in a very thankless role i was just like oh boy i like you and i hate you in this bang role mm-hmm the Happy Medium has been gender flipped to be played by Zach Galifianakis, who I normally hate, but I actually think he kind of does okay here. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. Kind of? Yeah. And then we've got Michael Pena as Red, who I thought was kind of inspired casting, and I wish we could have gotten a bit more of him. Yeah. And then the Misses are played by Mindy Kaling as Mrs. Who. Mrs. What's It is played by Reese Witherspoon in some unusual decision making there mm -hmm. and then of course miss witch is played by no other than oprah winfrey herself i am here for colossus oprah winfrey with glitter eyebrows i am here for it all day 
I mean, problems with the narrative and some of the effects work aside, the costumes in this movie (gasps) are like chef's kiss. Perfect. They're so perfect. Yep. Yeah, so this movie did receive mixed reviews. As I mentioned, it was a $100 million budget. It made only $132 million worldwide. Mm. And 100 of that came from North America. Yeah, this is not one of those movies that trans, like where it has a bad release here and then goes big abroad, which is what we normally see with these big budget movies. This is the opposite. Somebody dropped the ball on the international rollout here. There's absolutely no reason why this film should have only made $32 million worldwide. Like that figure alone dooms it. So it's a huge failure. It actually lost $100 million. Sorry, no, it lost $130 million. So basically, as much as it grossed, it lost that based on the marketing and advertising budget. Yeah. So this is a huge, huge failure financially, which is terrible because it's like Ava DuVernay becomes the first woman, the first black woman to direct a $100 million film. And then simultaneously, the first black woman to also have a film that loses $130 million. Which is garbage. And you can't blame Ava DuVernay for that. But of course, people do. Yeah, of course they do. It has a firmly mixed review, so it's 42% rotten, and the consensus seems to be that it works in moments, mm-hmm. that the diversity of the casting is inspired. Ava DuVernay was the right choice, but it is undone by a script that doesn't quite grasp the power of the novel. Same. And then also some dodgy FX work. Yeah. You know what's interesting is the TV show from 2003, or the I guess it was repackaged as a film. Whatever that thing that happened in 2003 was Mm -hmm. also has 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Isn't that funny? I also thought that that was very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently you can't get higher than 42% on this adaptation. So here are two of my problems with the story. Okay, tell me everything. I think it was a really weird and unnecessary choice to make Charles Wallace adopted. I did not understand that all because it gives him a special magical child adoption and also reframes their love for one another as like, you're not really my brother, but I still love you, which I found incredibly uncomfortable. It's profoundly uncomfortable. And I think what bothers me about it the most is, well, a lot of things bother me about it, Mm -hmm. but particularly like, so Charles Wallace in the book succumbs to the it because he doesn't recognize his own limitations. He thinks that he's stronger than the it because he's been told how special he is forever and ever. And it's kind of like there's this contrast between Charles Wallace, who knows how special he is, and Meg, who thinks she's worthless. And mm-hmm. Charles Wallace's inability to recognize his own limitations dooms him. And Meg's discovery that her faults are actually her strengths saves them, right? Yeah. And it, it's a nice... I like how that interplay works in the book, like, particularly since these are the two characters we get to know the most about. Exactly. But in the film, first of all, you don't spend any time establishing the bond between Charles Wallace and Meg at the beginning. No. There's that hilariously weird scene where she just comes down and he's warming the milk up. And in the book, it's because Miss What's-It is on her way over and also their mom is going to wake up. And in the Mm -hmm. film, that's literally just a scene where she says, oh, you made a lot of milk. And then we cut to the next day. (laughs) Yeah, it's very odd. It's very odd. But it also means that when... I don't know. It just sets up a really troubled dynamic for me that Charles Wallace is the one who like, quote unquote, betrays the family if you have him set up as the adopted kid, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's just a really troublesome dynamic that I don't think adds anything and I think only takes away from what the book is trying to do. 
Yeah, and it also it makes it really icky then when Mr. Murray decides to save only yes! Calvin and Meg. It's like, yes. oh, well, don't save that other kid because he's not really that important. He's not really a member of the family. <laughs> yes, that layer has been added for like no good reason. So that's my first problem with the story. Mm-hmm. My second problem with the story is that in an attempt to update this book to extract the sort of anti-communist elements from it, mm-hmm. the villainy in this, the shadow in this is actually sort of an obsessive individualism, right? It's a, an envy born of the striving of individualism, of capitalism, right? So we ta- we see all these scenes of people who are being consumed by the shadow because they covet the promotion that somebody else gets or they don't yeah. believe they're as beautiful as somebody else. And mm-hmm. it's all sort of about the disintegration of those relationships and the lack of connection. Yes. But then that doesn't go anywhere. Nope. That gets dissolved down into a... Maybe if we loved harder, everything would be okay. Yeah, it's a very strange kind of rom-com idea where it's like all you have to do to survive, to succeed, to get closer to the person that you want to be closer to is just really love them harder. Aggressively love them. Yeah, literally the finale of this comes down to a DC Universe level war of wills in some kind of neutral gross gray brown minefield with tendrils and it's just yeah. Meg being like I love you I love you I love you I love you uh, yeah <laughs> well yeah. like a special effects happened everywhere and you're just like is this what we're supposed to take away from all of this <laughs> like you just have to love harder <laughs> And she does go through the thing where she's like, I recognize my faults, but they're actually strengths. But because we don't spend any time establishing the faults at the beginning, it's just kind of like, she's just telling us things that are bad about her. I don't know. It's very strange. It's like the film spends so much time showing us these visual worlds, Mm -hmm. some of which are really cool and some of which are really janky, that we don't end up with a story. And ultimately, if you love this book, You love the story. You're not going to love what's happening here. I mean, okay, so we have glossed over the fact that this is a Disney film, and it was made in part because of the astounding success of Alice in Wonderland. Oh. So when you think about it from that perspective, it's the updating of a classic tale with gargantuan amounts of crappy FX that doesn't mean anything, yeah, but looks spectacular in terms of we're visiting exciting and brave new worlds. Right. And the screenwriter, as I mentioned before, so Jeff Stockwell is responsible for the adaptation of Bridge to Terabithia, which... Mm. I've heard mixed things about, like, the book is, again, beloved, the film, eh. Mm. And then the other screenwriter, Jennifer Lee, is responsible for some of the biggest animated successes. So she did Frozen, Frozen 2, and Wreck-It Ralph. Mm. And I would actually argue that if you look at what we ended up getting in terms of the narrative, the kinds of set pieces, the central conflict, which is resolved through love... This film was written like an animated film that just happens to have live action people in it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't work as a result, right? Like, if this was Frozen 3, I think we would feel very differently about it. Yeah. Which sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud. But honestly, when I realized that this is actually an animated movie about love, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And you know what? I bet eight year olds probably love it. Yeah. 
because it's flashy bright colors it's exciting worlds it's reese witherspoon turning into some kind of garbage fruit roll-up and <laughs> yeah what is that it's just a pegasus in the book isn't it i just pictured a pegasus yeah like a pegasus centaur and instead here she kind of looks like a weird bird i don't know yeah. a magic carpet bird it was very odd that whole scene i was like what why are we why are we doing this it was mm. so long that scene goes on for so long I mean, I think a lot of the scenes have that kind of feel, right? Where you're mm-hmm. just like, okay, so is this supposed to be anything other than candy-colored stuff that I inject into my eyeballs? Yeah. And the answer no. is often no. And that's no. part of the problem, right? Like, I think there's some really interesting creative decisions, like when Meg and Calvin finally make it into the X-Men prison with Charles Wallace after he's been taken over by it. Mm-hmm. And then she realizes that the way to get to her father, who is hidden from plain sight, is to, like, do math. And then we see her architecturally blueprint walk up a set of invisible stairs and into a prison. It's like, oh, okay, I like this visual signifier. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the depiction of totalitarianism conformity where everyone in suburbia is dressed like 1950s and they're bouncing the red ball and all of the women are aesthetically perfect those kinds of little moments worked for me but Mm -hmm. then we also end up with this garbage cgi battle at the end the weirdness of them having to make their way through a crowded beach i didn't understand that i was like um okay it's like you lose someone at the beach and that's like losing your individuality and your free will okay it didn't make any sense i think jennifer lee had this animated vision in her head and she was mm-hmm. like this is gonna look great with a hundred million dollars of special effects <laughs> and you're like uh except it also means nothing and it's very hollow there's also some really bad fan service in this film Ooh. I love me some fan service. I do not use fan service as a derogatory term typically. Mm-hmm. But like the scene that jumps out to me when I say that is when the happy medium is like oh. showing them the different possible worlds. Yes. And then he's like, oh, and there's Ant Beast. And you're like, wait, what? First mm. of all, there's no reason why the happy medium would call that creature Ant Beast. That's the name Absolutely that Meg not. <laughs> comes up with in English to describe this thing that is looking after her. Mm-hmm. And two, we never see that character <laughs> No, and I actually thought that that was a strong creative decision because the Ant Beast stuff, it doesn't play well. It actually stretches out the weight to get to the climax. So I think that was actually a smart move. But at the same time, then, like, don't don't throw it Just omit it. Just omit it. Like, you don't have to have the happy medium be like, don't worry, people who read the book. We know this character exists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And maybe you'll see them in a sequel. That'll never happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's also some really weird attempted updates in dialogue, like in that same scene where Meg can't find her balance because she's so consumed with worry and feelings of inadequacy. There's a moment where the happy medium pulls her aside and he mentions something about getting fat and living unloved in a cave. Yeah. I was just like, what is this? Yep. This feels like 2018 language imposed on a 1962 text, which is like what a lot of the other dialogues still kind of feels like. Another example of that is the way Mrs. Who's quotations function in the film versus the book. Like in the book, Mrs. Who, she has to use all her energy to like take a corporeal form. So like assembling language is really difficult for her. So Mm -hmm. instead she quotes. An element of the book I really, really like actually is that 
all the quotes are in all different languages, right? Mm-hmm. And they're printed in different languages and you get translations. But like she's drawing from all over the world. Yeah. And then in this version, I think <laughs> in an attempt to be funny or to be hip and current, Mrs. Who's quotations frequently venture into the American pop culture. Yeah. She's a consumer of uh, capitalist <laughs> goods. <laughs> I think the first quotation she drops is outcast. And it's like the yeah. first time it's like, oh, cute. That's funny. But it happens over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Also, there's no consistency. The last scene where we see Mrs. Who, her powers are back. She's about to test her, mm-hmm. but she's no longer speaking in quotations. What's happening there? Yep. Mm-hmm. Unclear. Yeah. Unclear. It's unclear why you mentioned gargantuan overlord Oprah Winfrey, Miss mm-hmm. Witch. And it's like, it's unclear why at some point she's big. Normal size? Yeah, because she starts off big when she's first introduced. And you're like, okay, that's a really great image. And also, who doesn't love a giant Oprah? Because I think we could all do with a little Oprah towering over us and offering us peace and comfort. Would accept. Would accept in a heartbeat. Especially mm-hmm. if she comes bearing like an avocado tree or something. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, she's informed by Miss What's-It, the Reese Witherspoon character, that it's uncomfortable because she's so big and normally people are not that big. So they test her to this other, aka New Zealand planet, which is gorgeous and beautiful. Beautiful. And she's still big. Yeah. But then later she becomes small. And I'm like, why wouldn't you have made that decision to make her small at that point? When she comes back out of the tesser, she's made that adjustment. It's so wildly confusing. It's so wildly confusing. There's a bunch of things where you think, I don't know that they really thought this through. And it feels like there were a number of times where it was like the overlords at Disney saying, where's the set piece here? Where's the special Mm -hmm. effects extravaganza? You know, we need to see some flying magic BS at the expense of all of this boring talky talk stuff. So in it goes. You know, I'm not a big wearer of makeup, but if I could have one face, it would be the way Oprah's makeup is styled in this movie. Mm -hmm. I just want to do that for like working from home, like on a Zoom call. Yeah, just make yourself feel a little bit more special, right? You know, it's gorgeous. Okay, so we've ragged on this a little bit. Mm -hmm. I will say I liked all the actors. I liked all the actors and visually everything is gorgeous. Um, Except for the janky special effects. But I mean like the makeup and the costumes and even just the sets. Mm -hmm. Like I love their house. The house set is beautiful. Yeah, and I think you're talking about anything that's not really reliant on FX work. Everything practical is beautiful. Okay, because when they go to the happy medium and there's like all those floating rocks that they're oh, jumping yeah, no, around on, I was like, bad. no, thank you, sir. No. But yeah, the set design, the cinematography, the actual physical exteriors that they're using look really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Styled very well. Costumes, A+. Like, it's really tough because there's a lot that this film has going for it. Mm-hmm. But then you're just like, holy garbage narrative. And yep. also, how come these FX look so bad? I don't understand it. No, I know. It's like, were they not given the A-plus talent when it came to that? Because it's really distractingly bad in some parts. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just ultimately, it's just not about anything. No, it feels like an adventure movie Yeah, that ends with a character declaring their love and saving the day. But like, yeah. it's also two hours long. <laughs> it's too long. It's too long to not be about anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the biggest takeaway is Ava DuVernay got to direct this and she made history. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think Storm Reed becomes a visual signifier for little black girls and little brown girls and girls who are smart or interested in science and math who can now say, 
look at her. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of weird lingering question marks that I have about the decision making that went into some of this. And I wish that the film had have done better in a way, because as I mentioned, I think there's a lot of blame that just got shifted onto Ava DuVernay. Yep. Like this will be used as a justification to not give another <sighs> black woman a yeah. big budget action movie. Because that's the danger of this whole, like A, the whole there can be only one, right? We already have an Ava DuVernay. Why do we need more? And then mm. B, the like, she has to do everything perfect all the time. Like, she's responsible for an entire demographic group's access. Like, it's gross. Mm-hmm. Like, how many white guys have failed at making films and they still get to make movies? Oh my gosh, shall we talk about Tomorrowland, which is basically this exact same movie, only directed by a guy that totally failed, and then he failed upwards. Yes, yeah, let's oh do that. <laughs> or let's not. Let's maybe cap it off with some YA bingo. I'm up for it. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay. Okay, so I feel like we're not going to have as much as normal here. No, I think so too. I mean, Kamazots is a dystopia. Huh? Yeah, I was willing to compromise on that. It's not in the traditional all-world dystopia, but it's definitely an encroaching dystopia. Yeah. Uh, CGI, obviously. Oh, yeah. Stunt casting. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it took you this long. <laughs> I know, sorry. I was, I was looking at the wrong end of the card. Yeah, I don't know. Rich people problems? How so? I don't know. Because that house is giant? <laughs> the house is giant. As always. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I have abuse for Calvin's father. Oh, right. Forgot about that. Yeah, because it comes to nothing. He doesn't have an arc in this movie. It's very odd. But in the book, it's his mother who doesn't care for him and abuses her children. And then in the film, it's his father. Yep. Yeah. And then I have allusions to classic lit if you want to call Mrs. Who's references to various famous works, but I don't know. I'll take it for the book, but not the movie. Okay, yeah, that's very fair. Um, yeah, I think that's it, Joe. Uh, yeah, yeah. This film did not play by our usual tropey standards, but it also somehow didn't work in other regards. (laughs) good try everybody sure yeah (laughs) i didn't hate any of this no i didn't either i just kind of felt a little bit let down the whole thing was fine right and i think the problem is i went into it knowing how important this story is to so many people Mm -hmm. and so for that reason I was wildly disappointed. I was disappointed disproportionately to how the book actually functions. Does that right. make sense? Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. Well, that's that. That is that. <laughs> so if you want to write in and tell us how badly we missed this whole thing, which actually I'm genuinely inviting, like if we could have a Twitter conversation about what this book has meant to people to sort of offset our own lack of excitement about it i think that would be really valuable so if you want to talk to both of us it's hashtag hkhs pod on the twitters joe if they want to talk to you directly how do they find you i am at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and if you want to send us something longer maybe if we get a handful of meditations on the book we'll probably turn that into a minisode so uh that's hkhs pod at gmail.com mm-hmm 
Joe, what's our next Minnesota about? Speaking about Minnesotes. All right. Well, we are strangely enough ending August and moving into September. So it's time for another forecast episode where we're going to tell you all of the books and films and TV shows that are coming out in September and October. Yes, and it's a good list because a lot of things that got pushed back from the spring ended up this fall. Yeah, principally yeah. in September. So get principally ready because it's dropping on September 1st and we've got titles that come out on September 1st. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> and then our next full-length book, if you're updating your holds list and want to read along with us, is Holes by Louis Sachar. Sachar, another week where I don't know how to pronounce the person's name. Sasha. I'm just going to say everybody's French from now on. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a 1998 book, and this was a listener request, and we're also obviously going to be checking out the 2003 film that stars one Shia LaBeouf. I'm excited, to be honest, because this is something a lot of people have asked us to talk about, so I'm guessing there's something there. Yeah, this is one of two listener requests that we're going to try to get to in the immediate future. And I'm also excited. I basically stayed away from this because I legitimately do not care for Shia LaBeouf, although mm. I've always thought that he's talented. It's his off-screen persona that's kind of seeped into his roles. Fair. But I'm excited because, yeah, I think the book is going to be something special, and I hope that we maybe enjoy it a little bit more than we did A Wrinkle in Time, which I think we also thought was going to be something special. So we'll see. And I'm also excited to get into you know, for being very reductive, a quote unquote boy YA, which Holes definitely is. Mm -hmm. I think we're still sort of on our back burner. Joe and I are still really exploring why it is that these male centered texts in YA tend to disappoint us so much. So maybe we'll find one that doesn't. Yeah. 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 So that is Holes coming up in two weeks. All right. So until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye bye. Stay safe.